given that no retreat is ever the same as the previous retreat. That's certainly been my experience in this practice. And sometimes it's hard to make really general statement, uh, general statements about retreats that ring true, because of course all of us are following our own course. And certainly we all have very different experiences and different kinds of retreats. But one statement that I, I think I feel comfortable uh, saying right at, right at the beginning is that almost always the days are full. And uh, whether you're teaching and sitting or walking and sitting in silence, the day really is quite full. I mean, if you reflect, uh, we've been together for a mere two days. Uh, and if you reflect on just uh, how many experiences um, you've had, you start looking at the wide range of experiences that, you ha- that you've had, both pleasant and unpleasant, uh, I think it becomes quite apparent that there's a lot going on here. Even though we kind of look, it doesn't look like there's a lot happening. It's a very simple schedule, simple life, but clearly it's packed. There's lots of things happening. And I think uh, one of the reasons why it seems so full is because our mindfulness is getting stronger. Sometimes that's hard to see in the moment, uh, in the middle of all the work, but really we are starting to close the gaps in mindfulness. I think another reason why the days seem really full on retreat is that it really does take a great deal of effort. You know, most of us are really not used to putting in this kind of effort to be mindful, to be you know, that kind of micro-attentive uh, to all the details of life, really working and settling in the moment. And, and uh, that's what I'd like to speak to this evening, which is really about the kind of effort um, that um, really supports our practice. I think that as one, one's practice matures and grows, um, it's really important to understand the kind of effort that works and the kind of effort that doesn't. And it really is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing learning process. We never really quite you know, get there where we know exactly what kind of effort's needed all the time because it really is a discovery process Certainly, if you look at the Buddha's life, that's clearly what he discovered, um, was that it took him, and he, and he really learned the hard way, and he really paid his dues. One of the reasons why it's such a, a challenge, really, to find out what kind of effort to use in practice, what, what is wise effort, what is the right kind of effort to use, one of the difficulties in this practice, anyways, in discovering that, is, be, is it really represents a different approach. You know, the kind of effort that we ask from ourselves in this practice is really different. It's really different than a lot of times the kinds of demands uh, that the world places on us. For instance, it's not the kind of effort that has anything to do with trying to make anything happen. We spend an enormous amount of our time trying to make things happen in a certain way, controlling events, experiences, people. This practice is really radically different than that. It's not about making something happen. It's not really based on an attachment to a particular model of achievement or success. 
And we have all sorts of sophisticated and clever ways of evaluating ourselves in the world. Uh, you know, we have different ways of seeking approval and getting it, and different ways of getting confirmed. Well, this practice that really doesn't happen very much. Uh, if if, if, uh, if approval is part of uh, uh, our practice, part of our effort, then in, in quite often it can it can go in that direction. We really suffer a lot in that process. Because really what we're doing, we're really doing this practice for ourselves and nobody else. It's not the effort to figure out, to analyze, to solve. You know, we're not here to figure out what to do. We spend most of our time doing that. What we're doing on retreat is not trying to figure things out, not trying to fix ourselves, not trying to solve our dilemmas. We're really, we're really here to try to understand and to accept things as they are. It's not the effort to get rid of. Once again, that's a really deeply conditioned way of relating to experience, one that we're all familiar with. When something is unpleasant or not going our way, we try to get rid of it. A lot of us are really good at that, avoiding getting rid of. And in this practice, that doesn't work. It's not set up that way. Rather, it's the effort to be fully present. Simple. The effort to be fully present. The effort to pay attention to our experience, to soften, to open, to accept, to experience. To experience things exactly as they are, not as they should be. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the fact that the Buddha really, in his quest for enlightenment, his quest for unconditional peace, he discovered the middle, the, middle, the middle way, the middle path. And I think the middle path really applies to effort. What he discovered about the middle way was that uh, it's somewhere in between. You know, for him, he started out and spent his first 29 years really uh, really engaged in a lot of indulging of the sense pleasures. You know, really, uh, he, life was structured in a way much more so than ours, certainly, uh, uh, to avoid uh, pain, discontent, suffering. Spent 29 years doing that. And then the next six years, when he began to open up, he engaged in an enormous amount of striving, self-punishing, self-denial. And, he, and through that experience, uh, he, re- he realized that neither one of those really led to the kind of peace that he was seeking. That the self-denial and the self-punishing is on one extreme, that the lax and kind of being really indulgent in sense pleasures was in the other, and that it was in the middle where we were going to find peace. And the way that works with effort is balanced effort. The key in practice is to discover over and over again what is needed to bring our practice, bring our effort in practice into balance. Because it's constantly moving in and out of that place of balance. Sometimes it's moving over into the striving end, which is the extreme, the striving, the self-denial, the pushing, the punishing, the judging, the forcing, the trying to make something happen. It's one end of the spectrum. The other is the lax, the not trying not making the effort to pay attention, 
kind of giving up, maybe indulging in a lot of fantasy, really not making the effort in this particular context to, to try to pay attention to the breath. And maybe we find ourselves, uh, life is a little more interesting in the world of fantasy, or in the world of planning. So we find ourselves there a lot. We, we even consciously choose to go in that direction. And that's the other end of the extreme, that's being too lax. Both the striving and the indulging don't work. The striving leads to an inability to really open and relax. And I think we've seen that in our practice. There's a general contracting that happens with the striving, with the pushing. Life becomes narrower and narrower the more we strive. And really that driving force that wants something else to be happening, that really wants to get somewhere else, creates a lot of tension, and ultimately it creates a lot of doubt in the mind, a lot of discouragement, a lot of frustration, a lot of despair. Because we never quite get there. We strive and we strive and we strive. We never quite get there. Because it doesn't come through striving. The peace that we're looking for doesn't come through striving. Being too lax, what happens when we're too lax in our practice? Well, the first thing that happens is there's a real tendency to kind of slide into habit. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that we see in retreat, even in this kind of setting, which is so different than our everyday life. Uh, there's a tendency to really slide into the habits, you know, to kind of skim on the surface of all of our activities. Uh, to really, uh, our habits may get disrupted when we first arrive, but it's not too long before we start forming new ones. Uh, we start putting our shoes in a certain place, and we get comfortable with that, and then we start paying attention. Lots of different places where we, where we create habits. We sit in the same seat, you know, chosen this seat, and just by habit we find ourselves back in that seat every day. No real consciousness, no real awareness. We're not really paying attention. We're really not making an effort to wake up. Another tendency when we're being too lax is the mind starts looking more and more to the outside. That's a good sign when our effort is, is really lax. So when we keep looking towards the outside for satisfaction, when we start grasping for other things, once again, quite often that shows itself in a lot of planning and a lot of fantasy. Not that those particular states of mind or those energies should be judged, and I'm going to get to that later in this talk. Balanced effort is gentle perseverance. That's the middle ground. You have the gentleness. You don't have the judging. You don't have the striving. You don't have the condemning. You don't have the punishing. Okay, you have a really gentle, accepting approach. That's mindfulness, non-judging, awareness. So you have the gentleness, and then you have the perseverance the determination. What Suzuki Roshi described is constancy. You know, that kind of continuous effort. Just before this retreat began, I, I had the opportunity to sit for a month uh, on my own in a self-retreat, something I do fairly regularly. And I was up in a house uh, in a country setting, not so unlike this, and, and that, that this particular setting also had a loop. It had like a three and a half mile loop. 
and I used to walk it every morning after breakfast. And one of the things certainly I noticed right off the bat was somebody was building a house down the road. And they were really at kind of the initial stages. They had just built a foundation and they were starting to build a house. And, and, and of course, being uh, naturally quite nosy, uh, every time I walked by, I would really sort of study out, study the sort of the sociology, what was going on, uh, check out things. And, I, and I, I picked up pretty quickly that it was a family kind of thing. There was this family that was building a house and they were sort of incorporating some of their neighbors and, and you know, other, kind, other family members, probably cousins, uncles, the whole uh, wives, aunts, all sorts of people were engaged in this project. Uh, and it was, it, it was very inspiring, really. It was such a communal activity. Uh, but one of the things I found particularly inspiring about it was uh, they were there every day. Not everybody. But somebody, usually one or two people, even on Sunday morning, you know, somebody would be there kind of banging away on a hammer, cutting something, you know, you know putting up the frame. And in that sort of constancy, you really could see that they were really doing it for themselves. You know, they weren't sort of hired contractors, uh, but they were really motivated. They were on a mission. And they were really putting out the effort in a very continuous way. You could see they weren't stressed out. They weren't racing around. They weren't rushing. They were just taking their time, being very careful. You could see that because they were building it for themselves. And when I, when I would walk by, I would just get this real feeling of joy. And I really had this sense, of course, in a self-retreat, um, as it's implied, you're self-motivated. Uh, you don't have people ringing bells or telling, cracking the whip telling you to get up in the morning or, or, or eat mindfully or any of that stuff. It's really left up to yourself. And uh, it, it's its own thing. Um, and uh, I think for me, I really did get quite inspired. I used to go by and I would feel really like we were all in the same retreat. And I would really feel that energy coming from the house. Like they were really sharing my retreat. They were there every day, just like me. Um, and actually, I felt a little bit like I was part of their crew. Uh, and uh, that felt good too. A little bit different kind of work. <laughs> Hopefully I wasn't building a house in my mind the whole time. <laughs> but you get the idea. Gentle perseverance. Really important. I think part of uh, maturity in practice, I think, comes when, when we learn to, to begin to recognize uh, when the effort is imbalanced, and also to recognize when it's imbalanced, to really take advantage of that. I'd like to talk about some specific uh, situations, certain applications of, of wise effort, um, particularly in this retreat setting. I think it applies to uh, outside of this, but certainly I think uh, uh, it really does apply to sort of sitting, walking, being in silence, working with the breath, Working with the breath. Obviously, that's where a lot of our effort, a lot of our energy is directed. How does the striving show up? What are the kinds of signs that we can look at? Uh, how do we recognize the striving when, it hap- when it's happening? Certainly, one of the ways we can recognize it is when we, when we start uh, tapping into, when we begin to recognize the fact that, that we're, in, in some way, sometimes it's very subtle, but we're, we're engaged in controlling the breath, intervening getting in the way of the breath. And that's a really common experience. People are often surprised that, they, that they're doing that. 
Um, but it really is very, very common to find that you're kind of controlling your breath in some way. You know, either trying to make it a bit longer, maybe there's some discomfort in the breath and you're kind of trying to skirt that one, avoid it, whatever. But quite often controlling comes up. And really it, it, it's a good sign that, that there's some uh, imbalanced effort happening. Because once again, we're not the, the balanced effort is settling into the breath and just being with it exactly as it is. The striving is really trying to make something happen with the breath, getting and controlling it. Another way that shows up is kind of grasping at the breath. I don't know if you ever noticed that kind of subtle movement of like grabbing on to the breath. You know, somehow there's this movement of like holding it. So somehow that our awareness is dependent on keeping that in-breath, keeping that out-breath. Sometimes there's a hypervigilance in working with the breath. Okay, there's this sense, you know, like being ready to pounce on it, ready, waiting for that in-breath to show its head. Uh, you know, and you're going to be there. You're not going to miss one moment of it. And that kind of hypervigilance really does kind of imply sometimes a striving. Sometimes we find ourselves judging that wandering mind, that mind that takes us away from the breath which is really a big part of the practice, obviously, is that wandering mind. And that judging really does show. It's really, it's a good sign. Our antennas should go up when we notice that there's a lot of judging. Uh, certainly I noticed in my practice, especially in the first few years of my practice, an enormous amount of judging towards wandering. You know, like every time my mind would wander, there would be this little judgment, this little dig, little something that would happen. They would say, I did something wrong. Back to the breath. I did something wrong. Back to the breath. You know, and after a while, you know, you know, you see that so regularly. When you start being mindful of it, which is more of a balanced way of working with it, when you start being mindful of that judging mind, the judging the one, you're just bringing some mindfulness to the judgment itself. Just a moment. That's all it takes. The judgment softens by itself. And after a while, the judging dissolves. And then we can wander, and then we come back to the breath. And we really bypass the judging. Another way of striving and working with the breath is really creating this idea. I think a lot of people, a lot of us meditators uh, on this path, uh, create enemies out of our thinking mind. And we really begin to see thoughts as the enemy. Thoughts are something that we, we really need to get rid of. And I, I, I sincerely hope that's not true. I hope that our peace doesn't depend on getting rid of thoughts, because we're all in trouble if it does. Um, it doesn't mean getting rid of thoughts. Thoughts are not our enemy. And when we're starting to work with the breath and some thinking kicks in, once again, if there's some judging, if there's a pushing away quality, a condemning quality, there's probably a little bit of striving. There's probably a little bit of trying to make something happen. Maybe an idea that you should be more focused. You know, that idea that we should be concentrated. We should be focused. You know, our expectations are so high in this practice. We come and we sit for a couple of days. And we, most of us really expect to be concentrated very quickly. Like, we're never concentrated in our, our real world. But when we come here, we really expect, wow, we're really going to be able to stay with this breath. You know? And, you know, it really takes a lot of patience in letting go of those expectations. Striving. Lax. Checking out. Consciously checking out from the breath. Really, in some ways, kind of giving up on the breath. Uh, you know, it's, it gets boring. Uh, it gets difficult to pay attention. 
And so, you know, we interject fantasy. We start planning. We start doing all sorts of things in the mind. And that really is a, it, that really is a, uh, an expression, some, sometimes, not always, but it can be an expression of just the, the need to make a little bit more effort, the need to get a little closer. Larry talks about intimacy and working with the breath. And really a lot of times when there's an enormous amount of thinking, we're lacking that intimacy. And sometimes it just requires a little bit more energy to pay attention. You know, sometimes we have to just consciously tell ourselves, we're here to pay attention to the breath, and we're really going to try to generate some interest in the breath. Sometimes we really have to give ourselves, you know, that kind of talking to where, let's really look at this breath. Let's try to really see it really clearly in a really fresh way. You know, staying fresh with the breath, it's very critical not to get into a kind of mechanical, habitual way of relating to the breath. You know, where there's this, there's this just kind of subtle, kind of a little bit of awareness of the breath, and there's lots of thinking and lots of planning and lots of fantasy going on, but somehow we're just a little bit in touch with the breath. And the mind can really operate like that. So putting a little bit more effort, paying a little bit more careful attention, the balanced way. Gentle perseverance to keep coming back, to keep coming back, to keep coming back. Another, another way of staying balanced, another way of finding balanced effort and working with the breath is, is to continue to check in with your body, to continue to check in with your posture. You know, the striving mind and the lax mind really do show up in the body. You know, really show up, especially the striving. The striving, there's a lot of contraction that can happen in the body. Sometimes when there's a hypervigilance, there's a leaning into the breath. Uh, sometimes when there's striving, the, the, the body tightens up, the face tightens up. Sometimes when we're looking out here, we can see some faces all kind of crunched up. Uh, you know, and you can, you can really see that there's a, there's a lot of working going on there. Uh, and it can often be, the body really can be, you know, a thermometer, showing us when we're really striving. Tap into that. And then to consciously relax the body. You know, do it several times during a sitting. Just consciously relax the body. Check in with the body, relax, feel sensations, feel the contact with the floor, really ground yourself, and then go back into the breath. Extremely helpful way of staying soft staying centered, really keeping a perspective. Remembering, you know, working with the breath, remembering that the more, the more energy that you invest, you know, the more you can kind of keep recommitting yourself to coming back to the breath, the more calm, the more serenity, the more focus, the more concentration, the more the mindfulness develops. Each moment of mindfulness builds on the next moment of mindfulness. Each moment of mindfulness is strengthening our capacity to be mindful. It doesn't matter if you've only been mindful three times in a sitting. The mindfulness is getting stronger because more than likely it's three times more than what we're used to. So each moment that you pay attention, you're strengthening the mindfulness. And really remember that. The walking meditation. Someone said in the group today, and I think uh, they were um, 
kind of accurate in some ways. I think that uh, what they said is that a lot of times the walking meditation um, really gets taught and it's kind of held in this particular culture as really a second-class practice, as something that, you know, doesn't even come close to being as important as the sitting. And I think that, um, I think we, uh, we all need to be um, really careful about that, especially, you know, as we continue our practice. Um, I think it's important to recognize that uh, the walking practice is an extremely uh, important part of the day. Striving, trying to make something happen. That's something that shows up a lot in the walking. There's a tendency that, you know, the walking can be boring sometimes. And so there's a tendency in the mind, well, you really want to make good use of it. And so you get into this thing where you're really trying to make something happen with the walking. You either maybe walk in a little special way, um, or maybe, um, you know, you sort of expect maybe out-of-body experiences or uh, to really feel a real rush. Uh, you know, there's a tendency really in the walking too to try to make something happen. Um, and that's really a good sign uh, that we're striving too much. And once again, that often shows itself up in the body. When we're walking, once again, just like in the sitting, consciously keep the body relaxed. You know, keep checking in with the body while you're doing the walking to see if the body isn't tightening up. There's no need for the body to be like really crunched up. Uh, and really bent over and kind of your head looking at your feet um, to do the walking properly. You want to stay relaxed, stay fairly erect, really allow the energy to flow. You know, you want a light touch. You want to remember that with the walking, it's a settling in process. All we're doing is settling in to each moment of the walking. Not trying to make anything happen. Not trying to have a particular experience. Just settling in to the sensations of walking. Nothing special. Larry said, it's just ordinary. Just feeling the movement, the sensations, maybe incorporating the breath awareness, but you're just opening up and being with it exactly as it is. And the walking practice changes all the time. So it's not going to be one way. Sometimes we get an idea that it's going to be one way. It isn't. It changes a lot, just like the sittings. If you feel a lot of tightening up, you know, the mind is getting really tight in the walk, you should really feel free to go outdoors. You know, take a bit of air. You know, walk in a loop, you know, in a little bit of a circle around the driveway or out out back. You don't always have to walk back and forth. Okay, you can walk a little bit faster, vary the speed a lot. That increases interest sometimes, but it also generates energy for the sitting, generates energy, generates attention. You know, vary the speed. Experiment. Really find out for yourself what works, what feels best, what resonates with you, what helps generate energy, what brings balance to the mind. A lot can be done in the walking. It's really an important practice. And no more important than the other activities. Larry's really good. Larry's one of the few teachers, I think, that really emphasizes those places where uh, the mind tends to space out, like with the jobs and uh, your room. I think all of those really build a a, a tremendous momentum in practice. They really start uh, 
helping us overcome this really fragmented approach to practice. It's so easy because it takes so much effort to do this particular form, sitting and walking, that we have a tendency to get fragmented about practice and start seeing that this is kind of practice, but really our entire life is our practice. And paying attention to all the activities is really how we learn that. We can't just tell ourselves that. We learn it by doing it and really seeing that we can learn, we can grow, we can find deep peace, we can liberate ourselves in any activity. Certainly that's the Buddha's teaching. All the postures, all the activities. No fragmentation. Working with pain. That's certainly something that comes up uh, on retreat, certainly. Especially the first few days, there's a lot of adjusting, a lot of discomfort. In the group today, I asked people how how many people uh, were feeling, you know, a certain amount of discomfort. I think all hands were up. Um, So there is... There is discomfort is really a common experience, um, and of course striving is 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 having this idea, you know, trying to push through it. It's one expression, kind of the gritting the teeth, uh, contracting, tightening the body. Um, maybe maybe some kind of ideology around pain is maybe there's some kind of vir- it's kind of virtuous to sit there and be in pain. Okay, those are the kind of ideas about striving. Uh, I'm really familiar with this one, uh, unfortunately. Um, I, I come from the striving school, I guess. Uh, and uh, certainly in my early years of practice, uh, even before IMS was here, um, I was kind of traveling around uh, sitting retreats. And um, we, there was a three-month course. It was actually the first three-month course held in the United States anyway, and um, it was in Bucksport, Maine. And uh, I was a, quite a young man at the time, early 20s, um, and um, just learning the practice, being really quite naive, not really having a clue uh, of what I was doing, uh, and certainly no, no clue about what it meant to sit for three months. I just kind of signed up. Uh, I was kind of really enthused and, uh, you know, very... Um, driven about what the potential in practice would be. I, was re- I really wanted to get enlightened fast. And uh, the faster the better, certainly. Uh, and so uh, sometime in the middle of the three-month course, I really, uh, you know, I started noticing how long it was. Uh, <laughs> so it really is a long time to sit and walk. Uh, and, uh, you know, the schedule doesn't change. You know? And... Uh, once again, being of the striving um, uh, mentality, um, sometime in the middle of the retreat, um, I was sitting in a bench. I was using a bench not unlike this. The, the major distinction, though, between this bench that I use now and the bench that I used back then was this bench has a pad on it, uh, and the bench I used did not have a pad. Uh, and that's quite significant, uh, because sometime in the middle of the retreat, I started experiencing a lot of physical pain sitting on a hardwood bench. And after a while, that pain uh, 
unlike a lot of pain, actually, when you're working with pain, unlike uh, a lot of pain, this pain was getting really stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, and before you knew it, I was uh, really in a state of tremendous agony uh, sitting on this bench. Uh, the, the, sort of my tailbone was just, just I mean, in trem- tremendous pain, really. A- a- total agony. That's all I can say. When I look back at it, I shudder. I, I, I can't believe myself sometimes. Um, so um, I'm sitting on the bench and... and you know, after a while, really, the, even the, the first moment that my butt t- touched the bench in the morning, I would really be instantly in pain. And I, I would know that in that moment, I would know that the pain was only going to get stronger through the day. And of course, my heart would just sort of sink with that notion. And uh, you may be asking, good question, why didn't I reach out for a cushion? and put the cushion on the bench, uh, which I'm sure would be very obvious to you. You'd probably do it before you even sat down on the bench. Um, But to me, at that particular juncture of my practice, I was uh, thinking that there was something really good about this, um, that somehow sitting with this uh, tremendous pain was really going to benefit me enormously. And in some ways, the worse the pain, the more I could sit with it, the more I would benefit. And, you know... um, that went on for a few weeks um, uh, before uh, I finally had uh, my enlightenment, which was to, to, to get a cushion uh, and, 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 and to sit on the cushion. And needless to say, the first sitting was really extraordinary. It definitely wasn't jhanic bliss or nibbanic bliss, but it was really good. <laughs> I can tell you that. I mean, my mind, my whole mind, heart, body, emotion just totally began to relax. Uh, and I realized that most of the time my mind was really screaming. You know, like I was really focused on the, on the sensations and really doing what I was supposed to do. But my mind was really yelling, uh, you know, fighting the whole time. And... Um, That's striving, working with pain. No need to do it. Uh, Lax is sort of avoiding pain at any cost. Uh, Even anticipating when it is going to be painful and then avoiding it. Um, Sort of living with a lot of fear around pain. And I think that uh, that's something really important to investigate and to examine. And certainly a more balanced approach to pain is to begin to look at it, to begin to investigate um, to begin to, to see what pain is all about, to start bringing some mindfulness to those sensations themselves. I think one very important uh, thing to notice when working with pain is to begin to distinguish uh, the difference between the sensation itself and the reaction. Okay? The reaction, the way the mind is relating to the pain. Because quite often we conflate those two. We bring them together. And uh, they're really quite distinct. Um, and quite often it's the reaction that's really much stronger than the sensation itself. And that can be quite a revelation. That can be really a profound discovery uh, that you can see that the fear or the contraction or the anxiety uh, or the reaction, the aversion to, to the pain is really much worse, much stronger, much more difficult than the actual sensations themselves. 
And that understanding comes about by looking at the sensation itself and give yourself a bit of time to do that, but also to be aware of the the reaction, to be really aware of that mind state that comes up, which is, of course, aversion, judging, condemning, avoiding, pushing away, really getting a sense. And then, of course, not to judge the aversion, but to hold the aversion without judging it, bringing mindfulness to that aversion. Balanced working with pain certainly means if you have structural problems, you know, a lot of us are, are getting on in uh, the years, and um, certainly the body does have a tendency, as much as we wish it didn't, to kind of come up with little problems and start kind of breaking down a bit, not working quite the same level uh, that it was. And, and if you have structural problems, you really, really need to honor those. You know, if you know you have a bad back and you start sitting and you start getting into really strong pain in the lower part of your back, well, that's telling you something. It's telling you that maybe you should get up and sit in a chair. Um, that maybe you need to stand up a bit. Uh, you know, do some walking meditation. Maybe, uh, you know, if you really have a bad back, I've, some people will do a bit of lying meditation, but we don't encourage that so much in the hall. But, you know, basically you want a balanced approach. You want to use common sense if there's something wrong. Uh, certainly alternating sitting positions. Even if there isn't anything wrong and you're sitting with a lot of pain, you know, sometimes it's quite profound for some people to just give themselves permission to sit in a chair. You know, they don't think of that. They think of, well, you know, I real, this is the way to sit. I want to do it the official way. And that somehow sitting in a chair isn't quite, quite as good, quite as effective. I would play with that every once in a while. If you're sitting with a lot of pain, give yourself a break. Sit down in a chair. You can pay just as close attention to the breath sitting in a chair as you can on the cushion. Uh, but play with it. There's no also allowing oneself to stretch a bit, working with pain. Once again, it's gentle perseverance. It's how you're relating to all of it. If you're pushing to get through it, if you're pushing to get rid of it, if you're pushing to prove something, that doesn't work. But stretching very gently, allowing yourself to be with that experience of unpleasantness, you know, really sent, you know, get into the sensations themselves. Hold the aversion with gentleness, loving kindness. You know, really gently stretching in. A lot can be learned from that. A lot can be learned. Being too lax is moving at any point. You know, every time you feel a little bit of discomfort, to move. Every time you feel a little discomfort, you move. And you're not even mindful of the moving. You know, that's the other thing. If you do move, if you're in a lot of pain and you do shift your posture, a little bit of quiet shift, maybe you stand up, you do it with mindfulness. Build your practice that way. Builds continuity to be really mindful of any shifting, being aware of the intention, shifting, moving, settling into the new posture. Okay. Running out of time. Um, I'll start this anyway. So working with difficulties, uh, physical difficulties, pain. Well, there are, of course, other challenges. And, and, and really some of the biggest challenges uh, don't occur so much in the body. It's physical pain, but they, they occur as different kinds of energy. And, and all of us are starting to get familiar uh, with many of them. For, certainly the first one is uh, sense desire, you know, that tendency for the mind to fantasize or plan, uh, the wanting mind. Of course, we've all been conditioned to believe that... Uh, Happiness can be found in, in sense pleasure, or happiness can be found somewhere else. And of course, that of course feeds the planning mind, it feeds um, uh, fantasy. And of course, there's 
no need to judge fantasy and no need to judge planning. That doesn't help at all. That's kind of part of the striving model. You don't want to put a moral judgment on any of this stuff. But you, want, you do want to begin to recognize it as soon as possible. You want to begin to recognize when the fantasy arises or when the planning mind kicks in. Uh, gentle perseverance. Acknowledging, for instance, when sense desire is there, when fantasy is there. To make perhaps a soft mental note. Fantasy, fantasy. Planning, planning. Sometimes it just takes that acknowledgement, silent mental note, or just knowing that that's what the mind is doing. One moment, two moments of mindfulness sometimes. And it's quite striking. The planning mind will dissolve. The fantasy will dissolve. It may come back, but it dissolves in the time. You disempower it. You allow it to go. You let it go. That's what we mean by letting go. Recognizing, seeing it, and allowing it to dissolve. Recognizing without judging. Balanced approach. Another, another important way of working with fantasy is, is the practice of restraint. And there's a big difference between restraint and repression. Uh, restraint is built on wisdom. Okay? Restraint is built on seeing things as they are. And all of us know, you know, we're here, we're not here. Uh, we're here and we're putting out an enormous amount of effort uh, to do this practice. And we need to remember that. We, we need to remember, like Larry said, to keep that mind that decided to come here. Um, and it's quite easy to spend a lot of your time on retreat really deeply engaged in planning and fantasies. Uh, and it's very important uh, not to judge it, to recognize it when it comes up. It's a natural process. But it's also very important not to indulge it, okay? not to sort of dive in head over heels. Uh, it's okay to be pulled into it if that's what happens and you, might, you find your mind off. But you don't want to consciously feed a lot of fantasy. You don't want to consciously feed the planning mind. You want to recognize it, see it for what it is, and quite often that's enough to let it go. One of the advantages of working with fantasy in this way, in this context, you know, instead of feeding it like we usually do or getting into a lot of planning and feeding that, one of the advantages is by recognizing it and being kind of willing to let it go and to come back to the breath, one of the things that builds up is calm, is focus, is concentration. And what comes out of that, the fruit of that, is that we begin to discover powers that are inside ourselves. We begin to discover a much deeper sense of inner contentment a much a sense of real wholeness. We begin to overcome this feeling that most of us have deep down of incompleteness. And of course, the seductive power of fantasy and planning is really coming from that place of feeling incomplete, not feeling whole. When concentration, when mindfulness develops and grows, we begin to experience a peace and inner contentment that is less conditional less conditioned on what somebody else does for us, less conditioned on having a particular experience. But it's something that we can rely on. It's much more reliable because it's coming from within, something we can tap into. It's not dependent on certain situations or conditions. And so letting go of fantasy, letting go of that planning line, recognizing it and coming back, tremendous fruits in that. We really want to encourage you to do that. It's a much more balanced way. It's not repressing but it's really deciding to come back. 
working with the sort of the flip side of sense desire, pleasure, fantasy, planning, uh, is aversion, is that kind of reaction to the unpleasant. So we have the pleasant on one side, we certainly have lots of unpleasantness, whether it's on retreat or it's in our everyday life, it's part of life. And aversion, of course, is that reaction, that movement in the mind that pushes away the unpleasant, that doesn't like it, that wants to avoid it, that judges it, condemns it, contracts around it. Those are all expressions of aversion. Um, the striving mind is often fueled by our aversion. Okay, we have a lot of, uh, you know, we're, we're reacting to something that's unpleasant. We want something else to be happening. How often does that thought come up that we want something else to be happening? I think it ha- comes up a lot. How often are we really content with what's happening? Not too often. And what fuels that discontent is our aversion to what is actually happening. There's nothing wrong with the experience. There's nothing inherent in the experience itself, but it's in our relationship to it. And quite often our relationship to the unpleasant is aversion. And that's where we get trapped. That's where we get lost. That's where we become more and more reactive. And that's what throws us out of balance. So striving often comes out of that aversion, wanting something else to happen. So to be aware of that. When the mind gets silent, we begin to see the aversion, pushing, the striving. Lacks, of course, with aversion, different expressions of aversion are anger, annoyance, irritation. Uh, Lacks means, in working with aversion, is is kind of getting into a real blaming mode, Um, really justifying the feelings, justifying the anger, blaming. You know, not to say that they're not... You know, there's not a valid reason for the anger or annoyance or whatever, but it's, it's, it's when the mind starts getting lost and caught up in justifying it and blaming it, looking outside, blaming the object. That's, we're really, we, we stop paying attention. We forget to pay attention. Balanced energy is putting your attention to the aversion when it arises. You notice that something unpleasant happens, and then look, keep looking. There's the aversion to it keeping the attention on there, making a small mental note, aversion. Very helpful. Mindfulness deconditions aversion. That's its function. It deconditions us. And what that does is it disempowers the aversion. The aversion starts softening through the power of mindfulness, through the power of awareness. We begin to open. It begins to melt. Gradually, the more, the stronger the mindfulness gets, the more we remember to do it. So remember to be mindful if you notice that the mind is annoyed, irritated, angry, pushing away, judging. That's not a time, nothing wrong. It's not a time not to practice. It's a time to be aware of that, to be mindful of that. Another helpful way of working with aversion is um, to, once again, soften and relax in the body. If you notice that there's a lot of aversion in the mind, quite often what accompanies aversion in the mind is a tightening in the body. The body sometimes heats up. It gets angry. The body really does. You know, a lot of things are going on in the body. One way of working with aversion is to become mindful in the body itself. If you're feeling angry, annoyed, irritated, judging your experience, condemning yourself, a lot of the aversion is often directed towards oneself on retreat, sometimes to others, neighbors. Um, when you're aware of the aversion, go to your body, become aware of it. Shows it, it shows itself up. And then try to soften and relax. It's amazing what a difference that will make in working with the, with the aversion. Another helpful practice. Um, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this by now. 
is the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice. And we're not going to really teach that during this retreat so much, but um, sending a few thoughts, taking a few moments, you know, if there's a lot of aversion, a lot of tightness, you know, a lot of doubt in the mind, you know, some kind of condemning quality that's going on, things are getting more narrow, too tight. Send a few thoughts of loving-kindness to yourself. It is definitely one of the most powerful practices that's available to us. It really is extremely powerful to have that tool. Just sending thoughts of loving-kindness. May I be happy. And really wishing yourself the best. May I find peace. You may not feel it wholeheartedly, but do it. See if it makes a difference. See if the aversion doesn't soften. Take a minute or two. Just send a few thoughts of loving-kindness to yourself. Sloth and torpor, another difficult energy. (laughs) No doubt about that. Uh, And there's been a lot of it. Uh, And... and, uh, Really common, especially the first few days of a retreat, the sleepiness, dullness. Striving, of course, shows up in fighting it. You know, really taking that battle on, trying to get rid of it. Uh, you know, a lot of times we come into retreat with certain expectations. Uh, we don't expect to sit here and be sleepy. We paid our money. Uh, this is our second or third retreat, a fourth retreat, a fifth retreat, a ninth retreat. And this shouldn't be still happening. Uh, something else should be going on. And, of course, that those kind of thoughts really, really... Uh, uh, really fuel the fire in the battle with sleepiness. Um, you don't need to battle sleepiness. You don't need to contract around it. You don't need to judge it. You don't need to condemn it. None of that helps. Being lax. When you pay, when, being lax with sleepiness, of course, is, is no attempt to pay attention to it at all. You know, like you're just sitting there and there's like absolutely no energy, no desire no will, no intention at all, to even pay attention at all to the sleepiness. Um, Kind of a checking out, being kind of overly passive with the sleepiness. You know, sleepiness is one of those states of mind that we we tend to need to take a kind of more active role. Um, We need to do things, really, to help balance that energy, that low energy. Uh, We do things uh, uh, not based on judging, but, but really based on trying to bring a bit more energy into the system. And of course, there are lots of ways of doing that, because um, you know meditators have lots of experience in working with sleepiness. Uh, certainly, um, mindfulness of body posture, uh, really bringing your attention to your body. You lose your breath. You can't get back there for some reason. The mind is just too foggy, too sleepy, too dull. Try to stay in your body. Do your best. You know, pick some place in the body and just stay there. Just stay there. Be as attentive as possible. Hang in there. Uh, use the walking periods. Vary the speed. Very helpful for generating energy. Walking. Do some quick walking, some slow walking. Find out for yourself what brings energy. What brings energy into the sitting. Cold water in the face. That's actually one that's 2,500 years old. Uh, I was reading that in the, uh, the suttas. You know, sleepiness was, dullness was back then too. Uh, in fact, all of these energies are, uh, are talked about quite extensively by the Buddha. Um, cold water in the face is a good one. Uh, you go to the bathroom, wash your face with some nice cold water. It helps. Um, reflecting on the fact, and I can 
uh, I think I can safely say this, it's tremendous value to sit through it. A lot of times with the sleepiness, there's this growing tendency to think you're wasting your time. Uh, you could be doing something else. Um, well, that's true. You could be doing something else, but you're not wasting your time. It's extremely valuable to stay with the sleepiness. Staying with the sleepiness. Because you never know. Okay? We tend to wake up. We, we really build a tremendous uh, strength of character, st- tremendous patience. Not through striving, but just being able to stay with the sleepiness and working with it. That willingness to work with it, even if it is unpleasant. Okay. We talk a lot about uh, relaxed, being relaxed, and being attentive. That's kind of the that's the middle path, of course. Um, the thing with sleepiness, to reflect on, is um, with sleepiness, you're halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the relaxation piece. All you need to do is make that next step, the attention. Restlessness, striving, judging and identifying with it. Okay, that's, that's a really common experience with restlessness. Immediately the mind thinks that there's something wrong. Well, there isn't. It's just restlessness. It comes up. Uh, we come out of a culture of restlessness. And somehow, once again, we have very high expectations. We think we're not going to be restless when we're sitting there all day in silence. Well, restlessness is going to come up. Uh, and when it does, once again, no need to judge it. Acknowledge it. Maybe give a, bring a mental note to it. Uh, recognize it for what it is. It's a state of mind. Look at it in the body. Pay attention to your body. Pay very careful attention to the body in restlessness. One, uh, one very helpful practice is to make a vow to make a commitment, to sit absolutely still for five minutes. You're feeling really restless, quite easy to get fidgety, it's not scratching, moving around, without even noticing it. Make a vow to yourself, I'm going to sit here for the next five minutes dead still, and I'm going to stay in the body. Quite powerful practice. Quite often the restlessness, and just that intention to sit still, really balances out the energy really balances out the restlessness, brings more concentration. Because, of course, when we're restless, the concentration factor, quite simply, the concentration factor is weak, energy is high. And so we have restlessness. Finally, self-doubt. Big one. Quite often when we're working with difficulties, and it's certainly one of the things that we encounter is is Self-doubt. Well, striving shows up by trying to push doubt away. Sometimes we have this idea that we're not supposed to experience doubt, that we shouldn't have self-doubt, that we should be totally, you know, we know that there's this ancient path and people have tread it before, and we shouldn't have any doubts, we shouldn't have any self-doubt. Well, that's striving, that's pushing something away, that's denying what your experience is. If you have self-doubt, if self-doubt arises, you know, that, those thoughts about, I can't do this, this is right, you know, uh, you start, you know, a bunch of hindrances, a bunch of different kinds of energy are floating around, restlessness, agitation, sleepiness, fantasy, lots of aversion, and of course the mind, the next one, of course, is doubt. When that comes up, extremely important to recognize it for what it is, to acknowledge it. Ah, there's self-doubt. It's a particular state of mind. It's insidious, but it's there. 
self-doubt. Why it's insidious is because we have a tendency to believe it. Okay? We tend to believe self-doubt. We don't see it as a state of mind. We think that's who we are. We really believe it. And of course, when we do, it undermines our effort, undermines our energy, undermines our intention to practice. Striving. You don't, want, you don't need to push it away, nor do you need to buy into it. Once again, working with all these, such a wide range of experiences, it's, it's a, quite a profound practice. It really does open us up to so many parts of ourselves, so many things that are hidden, so many things that we don't see normally. Uh, just to remember that the balance will come. Balance will come with the right energy. Balance will come by itself through practice. And really... Uh, There are just so many fruits in this particular practice and the kind of peace and the kind of inner contentment that comes uh, is really unconditional. It's something that somebody really can't take away from you. It's something that you can discover and bring with you wherever you go. And uh, as the Buddha said once, that, um, that we're really creating for ourselves an island that no flood can overwhelm. And I think if you reflect on just the power of mind, where that no flood, no experience can overwhelm us. That kind of equanimity, that kind of unshakable confidence in oneself really comes from working with all this stuff. So we want to encourage you to just keep going, keep putting in the effort. And um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.